0: Welcome to MedTech Connect, a new digital health regulations podcast from Sightline. I'm your host, Hannah Daniel, and I'm a U.S. regulatory reporter for MedTech Insight. Every month, we'll interview a regulatory expert in the digital health industry who will help us break down policies and guidances coming out of the FDA, as well as other hot button issues such as cybersecurity concerns, the rise of AI and ML, or the fight to protect medical data. New episodes published monthly, so be sure to follow Pharma Intelligence on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and tune in to get notified when new MedTech Connect episodes come out. In this episode, I speak to three experts at Hogan Lovells about the Food and Drug Administration's recent draft guidance on decentralized clinical trials, which we also refer to as DCTs in this podcast. So the firm works with many companies who run clinical trials, and the four of us sat down to discuss the ins and outs of the draft, what pieces of the guidance still might need clarification, and how they expect to see the industry change as a whole now that DCTs are becoming mainstream. They also provide some helpful advice for companies looking to run DCTs. Kristen, Blake, and Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm really excited to have you all here today to talk about decentralized clinical trials. Um, But before we start, would you guys please introduce yourselves, kind of talk about who you are, and maybe how you got into your position?
1: Sure. I'm Kristen Zielinski-Duggan. I'm a partner in the FDA medical devices practice of Hogan Lovells. I'm based in Washington, D.C. Um, I have a background in biology and economics, and so I Started out in the consulting world, working with medical device companies trying to get through FDA and then moved into um, uh, being a a lawyer Um, uh, and generally work with companies that are making innovative products and trying to help get them on the U.S. market.
2: My name is Blake Wilson. I'm a partner in the FDA regulatory group at Hogan Levels as well. Uh, My practice focuses on FDA's pre-market approval process across medical products, uh, including medical devices, as well as oversight of clinical trials. So a lot of my time is actually spent with sponsors of investigational products uh, with respect to study design considerations and the use of clinical data in FDA-related materials. And prior to becoming an attorney, I worked in clinical research at Brown University, and I also hold a master's in biostatistics uh, that I use to help navigate sponsors uh, through the FDA-regulated clinical trial space.
3: Hi, my name is Stephanie Agu, and I am an associate also at Hogan Levels, and I specialize in FDA, pharmaceutical, and biotechnology development. And within that practice, I work on a variety of issues from exclusivity concerns to clinical research, bioethics, um, drug marketing and advertising. And I entered this practice just because I had always been interested in government approaches to healthcare and society. And on that note, it's been a fascinating few years in the FDA world, uh, certainly. And I'm excited to uh, discuss this topic with you.
0: Yeah, thank you guys for introducing yourselves. Really cool to hear a lot of bio background. I'm also a former, I was going to say retired bio major, but you never really retire out of bio. But it sounds like, you know, this guidance is really important to your work and the work that you do with clients. So we're just going to jump into the meat of it. So first, I wanted to ask you all, what about the draft was surprising? What was expected? Did you feel like anything was missing from the draft?
2: Sure. Uh, This is Blake. I'll kick us off here. And uh, I would say when the draft was issued, um, I actually thought that it was pretty much in line for the most part with how I thought FDA would step into, you know, formally putting out guidance uh, in the decentralized clinical trial space you know specifically you know following the experience under uh, the COVID-19 uh, enforcement discretion policies related to clinical trials I think FDA had a lot of time to actually consider and weigh uh, its options and how to implement you know uh, the procedures for decentralized clinical trials and I think that you see a lot of those tactics utilized in this newest guidance document Uh, I would say, you know, one thing that I was uh, hoping that would be there that wasn't discussed very much in the guidance document was actually around adverse event reporting when you utilize uh, a a DCT format for clinical trials uh, and specifically, you know, around, you know, more guidance on exactly when you use an HCP uh, to collect uh, adverse events how that should, reporting should be conducted uh, in order to make sure that it's generalizable with the rest of the study data and that all adverse events are being collected. Because I think that this is a critical point and could create issues down the line when you actually are putting in the marketing application. Um, so I was hoping that FDA would weigh in a little bit more on that, but uh, you know I didn't see it here in this guidance.
1: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. and And I agree. I don't know that I was particularly surprised by any of the elements that are outlined in the guidance, but I will just say that my overall impression, and I think we'll probably talk about this a little bit more later, was really sort of, you know, how are people going to practically achieve this? Um, it seems like a really, really sort of a tremendous um, logistical burden, you know, and as I was reading through, it was sort of like, these are good ideas, um, but, it, but it seems like it would be a lot of work to, to do a fully decentralized clinical trial and um, and so it was really, you know, and perhaps putting a lot of the burden on PIs to handle some of those logistics, for example, working with, you know, local sites or local healthcare providers. You know, I know that sponsors are very sensitive about putting more burden on PIs than they need to. Obviously, doctors are often very busy in their, in their lives, and, and usually sponsors want to take away a lot of that burden. So that was just one thing I noted as I was reading through the guidance.
0: Before we go into some advice for companies, how do you guys expect to see clinical trials change over time now that we have some kind of formal guidance in place?
1: Yeah, this is Kristen again. So, I think that there are a number of things that, you know, that can be implemented and a number of aspects of the guidance that could be implemented. Perhaps I'm more on the skeptical side from having done this for many, many years. You know, I've seen FDA put out a lot of policies that really sound good in concept and then don't necessarily come to fruition. So, I think it remains to be seen, you know, how sponsors will implement this, whether they will primarily take a hybrid approach and sort of take aspects of Decentralized clinical trials, you know, which they're already doing, as Blake noted today in the wake of COVID and remote visits and things like that that have already been happening and and use of digital technologies and trials, and take sort of pieces of it or kind of go to the fully decentralized clinical trial. So I think that remains to be seen. But you know, some of the benefits that I think they're hoping to achieve, that sponsors would hope to achieve too from the guidance are things like greater subject participation. You know, being able to enroll more subjects, more diverse subjects, subjects that might not be closer to major clinical sites, and possibly even sort of just retaining subjects um, better in trials, you know, perhaps coming to a central site at the beginning of the trial, but then being able to visit their local healthcare provider for follow-up visits. So, you know, perhaps increasing follow-up in trials. I think also the use of alternative data sources, the digital health technologies is obviously something that, you know, there's other guidances as well about that, um, specifically, you know, and use of electronic health records, but really collecting things in a much more modern way than necessarily has been done to date.
2: I definitely think there's going to be a lot of challenges here, but I think within, uh, you know, my practice and the sponsors I've been advising on this, you know, we hear a lot of excitement about, you know, the possibilities of decentralized trials. And one of, I think the key aspects is Kirsten was indicating around enrolling the broader populations, but also being able to potentially speed up enrollment, basically to pull everyone from a single large center uh in the surrounding area and really being able to go out into more communities to be able to uh you know leverage those different pools of patients that may be available and that this would actually bring in a broader perspective from the patient population and give you a more robust hopefully data output so I think companies are really excited about the potential enrollment opportunities I think that you'll see uh, companies trying to use this with respect to, again, not having to have everything focused within a single site, coordinating all the subjects to come back within that location, and instead giving more flexibility to patients to participate in clinical trials by allowing them either to have assessments performed at home or to visit a clinical center uh, or an HCP that is within you know a shorter distance to their home and allow that more facilitative process. And so I think the hope there is that you may actually just encourage, you know, more patients who would not otherwise think of participating in a clinical trial to now become involved. Uh, So I definitely think that using decentralized clinical trials is going to become a mainstay of how clinical trials are run, but you know, the extent to which it is implemented is going to be the question mark. And we'll just have to see, you know, how well sponsors are able to manage it and how well PIs are able to manage this new scope of responsibilities when you have uh, you know, additional participants that are going to be involved in the management of clinical trials and actually providing assessments.
3: I have one thing I want to add here as well, and this is Stephanie. To Kristen's point about uh, the context, in the context of diversity and greater diversity, I think something to mention here is that we often think about clinical trial diversity in terms of patients. And I think certainly DCTs do lend themselves to increasing patient diversity. But I think also there's a potential for DCTs also diversify the trial staff and personnel involved in clinical trials. I think one of the features of DCTs being that those living in geographic areas, outside of, you know, your typical academic medical center can become more involved in clinical research. The guidance speaks often about the use of local HCPs in clinical trials. And so I think that is a route that can be used as well for us to see greater diversity in terms of clinical trial staff and other entities involved in clinical research.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We've done a lot of stories over here at Bedtech Insight talking about different companies and how they're working to increase diversity in clinical trials, a lot of times using hybrid clinical trial models. But yeah, some interesting conversations I've had recently around how do we diversify the staff as well and how do we, you know, educate people who are running these clinical trials so that the access is not just given to the patient. I hope you're enjoying this episode of MedTech Connect. If you want to hear more podcasts like this, make sure to follow Pharma Intelligence on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts to be notified about the newest episodes. Also, don't forget to check out our daily news publication, MedTech Insight, at medtech.pharmaintelligence.informa.com for all the latest on medical devices in the EU and US. Again, that's medtech.pharmaintelligence.informa.com. Now, back to the episode. So a lot of promising things that are coming with decentralized clinical trials being popularized and you know coming into the mainstream, but let's also talk about some concerns. And something of note is how decentralized clinical trials are going to go through the inspection processes. So what concerns do you have about how these decentralized clinical trials will be quality controlled?
2: This is Blake, and you know, this is a really great question. I think everyone recognizes, in theory, decentralized clinical trials sound great. The reality is, though, that the devil's in the details of how it's actually being executed. And so, you know, I think you'll see throughout the guidance document that FDA issued, one of their concerns that they raise, and it's a natural aspect of a DCT, is that there's going to be more variability involved because you just have so many more people participating in the trial in terms of who's conducting the assessments who's reporting the adverse events uh and how they conduct each one of those procedures you know the benefit of a centralized trial is that you're going back to the same place. Usually a set staff member is conducting those procedures. And so you have a lot of consistency from patient to patient. Once you start to enter into a either hybrid or a fully decentralized clinical trial, all of a sudden you're adding more and more variability into the process. And so that creates you know the possibility that people are going to conduct uh, you know study procedures in slightly different ways that could potentially introduce bias and you know this is one aspect of the inspection it's going to become very important because FDA is going to be looking for those sources of variability that may exist and may have skewed study results and so that is I think one concern um, from the inspection standpoint in addition simply the ability to monitor decentralized clinical trials you know can be very challenging within a centralized aspect you have a limited number of sites uh, you know you can set up monitoring visits on regular schedules you check to make sure informed consents are being conducted correctly you, you know spot check through the data and it's you know kind of a well-established perce- procedure. procedure for how you do that. When you start to move into decentralized clinical trials, though, the onerous to uh actually manage and monitor all these different participants who are helping to conduct your clinical trials becomes much more challenging from a logistical perspective. I think FDA tries to be very clear that the onerous is both on the sponsor to be monitoring the clinical trial at the high level, but on the PI level, they're also going to be in charge of managing anyone that they're delegating responsibility to. And so essentially, whenever you're creating the opportunity for more people to be involved, again, you have this opportunity for more variability to be introduced or for people to not perform the study correctly. And so monitoring is going to have to be a key aspect of how this is being performed and making sure there is significant coordination between these different groups in order to make sure that the study is being run in a scientifically valid manner. So again, you're going to have to make sure that you have ample training up front. All these aspects, I think, are going to become very important.
1: Yeah, no, I think you I think you really covered it Blake and I would just add that in addition to sort of all the different players involved and all the different entities involved devices involved as well, Um, the various monitoring devices, the ways that the data is collected, and how it flows, how both for the sponsor when they're monitoring the study, but then also for inspectors, how they're verifying that all the data that may be coming from a wider range of sources really is valid and appropriate, and that there's sort of a chain of custody of that information. And I know that's also covered in a different guidance, but the DCT guidance that came out covers that as well another source of variability, I think, in the trial um, that you were talking about.
3: Well, I think one thing to mention, which is the idea of where inspections can take place. And so there is a component in the guidance that mentions that FDA will inspect the central location and the central locations where all of the trial-related records are kept and stored. But it's important to remember that FDA has expanded inspectional authority to really inspect any sites, facilities, and persons involved in, or who have engaged with the sponsor in terms of data collection. In data analysis for the trial. So even though there is a central location where all of the records will be stored, and that's definitely up for inspection, it's important for sponsors to keep in mind that there's a really wide variety of different entities involved in a trial that can be inspected as well.
0: It seems like there are some concerns, and there's a lot of variables, and um, maybe those will be addressed in a final guidance, maybe those will be addressed in the field, but for companies who are starting to dip their toes into DCTs, who are already, you know, full steam ahead on them, for people who are unsure, what advice would you all have for companies who are interested in running a decentralized clinical trial?
1: This is Kristen again. I think one of the things is to really plan for all the logistical challenges that we just talked about. You know, there's a number of considerations in the guidance, figuring out the roles and responsibilities of the sponsor and the investigator, you know, who's doing what, who's responsible for supervising whom, making sure you have plans for monitoring, plans for ensuring the integrity of the data. I think there's probably going to be a lot of having to develop procedures and so that maybe would be outside of the standard ones that companies would already have for clinical trials. I think another thing is talking to FDA as as they put in the guidance and as we sort of, you know, always recommend talking to FDA when you're planning your trial and certainly getting their buy-in and their thoughts on the trial design and how you're planning on on conducting it could be helpful. And then this is sort of basic, but it, you know, whether or not the format really lends itself to your trial. I mean, for many kinds of medical devices, you know, plants and other things like that, you know, it may just not be all that practical to do, for example, a fully decentralized clinical trial. Um, Obviously, you couldn't really do that. But which aspects from this guidance might make sense in the trial and, and for what kinds of devices it may be appropriate for versus not?
2: And I would advise sponsors to be very careful about the assumptions that they are building into their clinical trial design when they're trying to incorporate a decentralized format. And a lot of that comes down to really thinking about how transitioning from a traditional centralized trial to a decentralized trial could have an impact, you know, and this includes on things like sample size calculation and effect size. If you're using data that is from a centralized clinical trial in order to establish what you believe a likely effect size for your product is going to be, you need to take into consideration that decentralized trials naturally have more variability and that this will impact what your sample size calculation would be. In addition, you know we were referencing digital technologies for remote monitoring and assumptions that may be built in about what validation was necessary to establish the validity of that product for use in a clinical trial and making sure that you reach out to the FDA before you start to run the clinical trial. Uh, these issues are extremely hard to address after the fact and you know may become a huge hurdle in order to get past a marketing submission.
3: And then on that note, the comment period for the draft guidance is still open. It'll be open until August 1st. So we expect to see many members of the industry submit comments and and see if FDA will incorporate them in the next final
0: guidance. Well, that was a perfect way to wrap up. So I wanted to thank you all for being on this episode of MedTech Connect and sharing your thoughts about the decentralized clinical trials guidance. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. MedTech Connect is a podcast by Sightline. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, check out MedTech Insight. There you can find any articles we mentioned in this episode and more articles on the subject. This podcast and others by Sightline are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. So make sure to follow to get the latest updates on when new episodes are published. Thanks for listening and be on the lookout for more MedTech Connect episodes every month.